Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another weekly live session of Colorism Healing with yours truly, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. Today's topic is four areas of life impacted by colorism that many people find surprising. So I know a lot of my followers are well-versed in colorism, but even in 2021, a lot of people are shocked that colorism has such a broad impact on our lives. A lot of times we think it's relegated to just beauty pageants, but it's much, much deeper than that. (laughs) Before we dive in, though, I always like to take a moment for folks who are tuning in live to introduce yourselves, to say hello to the community, say state your preferred name, where you're tuning in from. I also have a couple of announcements, so I don't want to forget to say these things, so I'm going to say them at the beginning. But the writing contest is open now. The Colorism Healing Writing Contest is international. So anyone in the world can participate. There's no age restrictions. It is free to enter. And we are accepting submissions through April 30th, through April 30th. So you have plenty of time to get something written. Um, And we also have a membership community now too. So if you wanna support the contest financially, we have a Patreon membership for as low as $3. It includes various perks, signed copies of the books, monthly Zoom sessions with all of us to check in. So good times there. All right, let's see who's tuning in. We have, hey, Garden of Danny, Denai, I hope I'm saying these these names right. Um, Sienna, always good to see you. Welcome back. Glad to catch you live this week and not just the playback. Absolutely. Y'all know I love interactive lives, Um, but I also appreciate anyone who's watching the recording as well. And if you are watching this and the playback, make sure to leave a comment and let me know what you think. Felice Flo, what's up? Hey, how are you? I'm trying to see what this little emoji thing is that you put on there. It's like a star with a red background. Hey, Courtney, how are you? Welcome. I remember your comment on the post, so I'm excited to hopefully get some of your perspective. Hey, JB, Dr. Crutch, Danny. Oh, we got UTA in here deep. (laughs) All right. So y'all already know where I'm headed with this, but it's I posted on this about this topic four areas of life impacted by colorism that most people find surprising. I posted about it on Sunday. So every Sunday I post the topic that I'm going to be talking about in the live. So just a heads up there. You can know in in advance what I'll be talking about every Tuesday by looking at what I post on Sundays. But in that post, I did have some people commenting, as I expected, right? This is why I'm doing this topic. People were confused, right? There was one comment where someone was confused and they said, shouldn't it say racism? Shouldn't it say race, right? Um, And so they were saying how, you know, there aren't enough people of color or black people in decision making positions to perpetuate colorism. So even in 2021, there's still a lot of confusion about what colorism is and how it shows up in our lives. And so I want to do some basic explanations of that for all of us today. 
Um, so the first area of life, well, first I'll say, let me clarify this. Colorism can be perpetuated across racial groups, right? So black people can experience colorism from other black people, yes. But we can also experience colorism from non-black people, including white people, right? So it's not about the race of the person doing the discriminating, right? Or showing preferential treatment. It's about the race of the people they're differentiating between, for example, if you have a white school teacher, we're going to get into this, but if you have a white school teacher and they're teaching at a black school, all their students are black, but they treat lighter skinned black students more favorably than darker skinned black students, it's not racism. Why? Because all those students are the same race. The difference is their skin tone. That's the, the difference that's basing the discrimination, right? That the discrimination is based on. So that's one way to discern if it's racism or colorism, right? So if the group of people that are being treated differently amongst themselves are the same race, then it's not racism. If they are being treated differently because of the shade of their skin, then that's colorism. And so a white person can treat us differently. Other black people can treat us differently. Latinx people can treat each other differently, right? So it's not um, just black people on against black people perpetuating colorism or Hispanic people against Hispanic people perpetuating colorism. We can do it across races as well. So I think that's important to know because that's where the confusion comes in at. When people say, oh, I didn't know colorism impacted healthcare. I didn't know colorism impacted police brutality. It's because they think it's just what black kids do to each other on the playground, right? But it's, as we're gonna see, it's much deeper than that. Um, if you're coming on, you can still say hello and introduce yourself. Um, and I do pause every now and then to take questions and comments. So post any questions or comments and I might um, have to get to them. I might get to them a little after you've posted them, but I will go back and read your questions and comments. So the first area that people are surprised by is healthcare, right? And I'll say just up front, any this area where there's a disparity based on race, there is also disparity based on color. So anything in our society where you can say, well, white people are more likely to get hired even with a criminal record, or white people are less likely to be arrested for the same crimes that black people get arrested for, right? Any racial inequality has a parallel inequality based on color. And this is amongst African-Americans, amongst Latinos and Hispanic Americans, amongst Asian Americans, but also in other countries. So when we think about global colorism as a global issue, right, you'll see the same kinds of disparities happening in Asian countries. You'll see the same kinds of inequalities happening in South American and Caribbean countries, right? So in healthcare, a lot of, in all of these sectors actually, have a lot to do with implicit bias. Okay, so I feel like I'm defining a lot of terms this week, <laughs> but I want this video to be sort of a one-on-one -on -one, 101 video where we can establish some of the basic uh, understandings of what colorism is. So a lot of what colorism, what happens when we experience colorism deals with implicit bias, which are the subconscious programmings that we have about people based on their race or their color, right? Or their gender, even their class, their body type. We can have implicit biases about so many different things, even people's um, accents, 
right? So if someone in the U.S. has a foreign accent, we have implicit biases around all these things. And so an implicit bias is subconscious. And so we don't know that we have the bias necessarily. And even if we know we have the bias, it is happening automatically. It's an automatic response from our subconscious mind being conditioned for years upon years upon years to react or to categorize or to associate a certain skin tone with various um, personality traits or various behaviors or various um, levels of intelligence, right? And so in healthcare, some of the implicit biases specifically that negatively impact darker skin individuals in particular are perceptions of things like strength, right? There, are, there have been studies that show that medical school students really do think that African-Americans or Black people are stronger and experience less pain or have a higher pain threshold than white people, right? And we have implicit biases and assumptions and stereotypes around cleanliness, right? And not being adequately treated because someone doesn't want to touch you or someone um, thinks that you'll contaminate a space. And then a third one is assumptions about honesty, about morality, assumptions about whether or not you're telling the truth, right? Simply being willing to believe darker skinned black women, darker skinned black men, especially if you have intersecting identities such as being plus sized, right? Or being lower on the socioeconomic spectrum, right? So if you're dark skinned and if that's compounded by being overweight and that's compounded by being working class or poor, then people are more likely to have these negative stereotypes and negative biases against you. But in terms of the morality piece, we think about in women's health in particular, right? Assumptions around who's believed in terms of, you know, certain conditions that deal with feminine hygiene or feminine health, right? Um, beliefs about who might be on drugs, right? I'm getting very specific here, but assumptions about, you know, or they're, they're probably um, ODing or they're probably high, right? Are these um, symptoms they're experiencing must be the result of drug use, right? Are these symptoms they're experiencing must be the result of hypersexual activity, right? Um, and so these stereotypes are most heavily applied to darker skinned black people. Now we have a lot of people joining and I see a few comments. I'm catching up on some of my waves. Okay. Um, Jendelle Crutchfield says global with multiple L's. Jen, she also says believe dark skinned people. Absolutely. Thank you for chiming in there. <laughs> um, so then the second area of life impacted by colorism, and this is one that I've talked about recently on Instagram too, is policing and the legal field, the justice system, law. So we have a lot of information and data on the differences between Black people, African Americans specifically, and what happens when we encounter police violence, right? And what happens when we enter into the so-called justice system, okay? <laughs> Compared to other races of people, 
especially compared to white people, right? There is less data, right? Less research is done on the impact of skin tone across all these factors, which is part of the reason it's so surprising for people. And so to my researchers who are watching, I know a lot of you are doing this work to make this information more known and more accessible and more widely known by the general population. But it has been an oversight in the research, right? That the gaps in how black people are treated by police officers are influenced by the particular skin tone, the facial features, and, and also hair texture, right? And police brutality, police violence, police killings in particular, have a lot to do with the initial reaction when we see someone, right? That's implicit bias. So I'm gonna ask the people watching, what do you see first? Do you see a person's, quote, race, or ethnicity, or do you see their skin tone and their features first? This is not um, a rhetorical question. I want people to type in the chat. <laughs> Sienna says, colorism in healthcare is super important, particularly mental and behavioral health. That's what my poem in last year's anthology was about. I'm still searching for more info on this. 100%. Um, I do have an index of research articles and things like that on the website, and I'm working with a student to help me update that with more recent research articles. But a lot of the data and the research being done in healthcare includes mental health care, right? And how mental health care providers have to be aware of colorism as an issue, but they also have to check their own implicit biases about their clients of color. Um, so... People are saying you see their skin tone and features first. JB says skin tone features hair, skin tone and features skin tone. Right. So before you register what race someone is, you process what their skin color is. And in fact, the brain processes their skin tone in order to place them in a racial category, right? So you can't even get to what race a person is without first perceiving their features, their hair texture, their skin tone. And I'm talking about subconsciously, right? I'm not talking about in theory, you know, all people are the same. I'm talking about that initial immediate gut reaction when we see somebody on site, especially in a heightened, hyper um, stressful situation like being called to the scene of a crime you are more likely to rely on your subconscious programming in situations where police are involved, right? And so they are reacting to skin color, skin color, to the way the person looks first and foremost, especially in these um, scenarios where we see them shooting seemingly out of nowhere, right? Opening fire out of nowhere for no reason before the person has a chance to respond, before the person has a chance to put their hands up, right? And so that's where a lot of the colorism impact of colorism comes through in policing. But it also takes place in the justice system, in the law. So if a black person survives the police encounter, encounter and is actually arrested and given due process to go through the legal system, you know, um, yes, I'm emphasizing, give us due process, Innocent until proven guilty obviously doesn't apply to us, but I digress. <laughs> um, then the implicit biases of judges 
of jury, jury members and even the legal counsel itself, right? is going to be more likely to place blame and assume criminality of darker skinned black people. And again, this is compounded by socioeconomic class, right? This is compounded by even levels of education. If you get called to the witness stand and you sound more professorial, right? There's an implicit bias on the part of the jury or the judge that says, oh, okay, well, you know, Dr. Webb's a little educated. So maybe she's telling the truth, maybe versus um, my darker skinned sisters who don't have the education and sort of the knowledge or the social capital to navigate the legal system in certain ways. Yes, I see race first, then I shift to features. Okay, but how do you identify the race? Like, how do you know what the race is if not for looking at the features? Um, and then also... Because wealth and income, so I'm talking about that fourth, impacts people based on their skin tone also, you're disadvantaged in terms of your access to legal counsel in the first place, right? So historically, generation to generation, um, there's been a wealth gap amongst people of color, amongst Black people, amongst Latinx people, amongst you know immigrants of various races, where the lighter skin tone members of that group have higher wages, earn higher wages, and attain more levels of education, right? And so then they themselves, as well as their children and offspring, have greater access, right? Because of that generational cycle of wealth versus the generational cycle of poverty. Um, JB, few would admit that they were given a different treatment by law enforcement because of skin tone. This is true. What I'll also say too, because I've been doing this long enough to anticipate the questions, right? Or the rebuttals. And so a lot of people will say, well, I get stopped by the police too. And I get profiled by the police too. And so that is correct. Light skins, even white passing people of color get stopped and profiled by the police. But we might say white people also get stopped by the cops. White people also get mistreated by the cops. White people also get murdered unjustly by the cops. So we're not saying that you will never experience discrimination because you're lighter skinned. It's just that you will likely experience less discrimination the lighter your skin tone or the more European your features are. Um, Michael Eric Dyson speaks about that different treatment. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. So Michael Eric Dyson talks about all of this, right? How he being the lighter skinned brother and his, his, his younger, I can't, I don't know if he's an older brother or younger brother, is a deeper brown, a much darker shade of brown than he is. And his brother was treated differently all throughout their lives. Michael Eric Dyson went on to be the educated, you know, PhD professor, and his brother ended up serving prison, a long prison sentence, right? And kind of being tracked into the, the criminal outcomes of life because people thought he was less intelligent, you know, assumed more negative um, stereotypes and attributes to the darker brother. And I've seen it too as a teacher, right? I've taught fraternal twins, where the darker fraternal twin with more Afrocentric features was tracked into lower performing courses and the lighter brother who had more alkaline features, right, was 
on the honor roll, right? Was in honors classes and was treated as like a star athlete and a star student. And they were fraternal twins. So their home environment was the same. Their age was the same, right? All those other socioeconomic factors were the same. So the only difference was the way they looked. And so it was very apparent to me in that situation how um, perceptions of intelligence and also even behavior, right? So that brings me to my third point, which is colorism also impacts education and schooling. So if I continue with that example, right, a lot of the research on colorism explains and shows that the lighter your skin are across all racial groups, so African-Americans, Latinx people, Asian-Americans, the lighter your skin tone, the more you are perceived to be intelligent, competent, professional. But also in school, perceptions of goodness are important as well, right? So teachers see lighter skinned students as good, the good students, and they're more likely to perceive darker skinned students as bad students. And so that is what we call a halo effect, right? So because little Susie is light skinned and has long curly hair and, you know, hazel eyes, you know, we think she's the cute little girl and she's also smart and she's good. And we're going to choose her, you know, to give the morning announcements and we're going to put her in the school play. Right. And so there becomes um, a universal application of goodness that's attributed to that student because of how they look. And then a universal application of being a bad student, both behaviorally as well as academically, because you're darker skinned or your features are broader or your hair is kinkier. And again, I keep emphasizing this. I don't know why I'm feeling compelled to emphasize that this is compounded with socioeconomic status. So it's especially difficult for darker skinned people who grow up in working class, poor schooling environments, right? To mitigate, to, to combat or sort of protect themselves from the impact of colorism. And one study in particular, I remember seeing that dark skinned girls who are wealthy or who come from like upper middle class backgrounds sort of feel it less, right? Because they can... Um, lean on or reach to other aspects of identity and social capital that sort of make up for what colorism is doing in their lives. Okay, I've seen a lot of comments come through, so I'm going to take a quick pause, see what I might be missing. Um, you never know what someone's race is by the way they look. This is true. But we also rely on the way people look to determine their race, right? You can't determine someone's race by looking at them. But if you look at me, everyone, no one who looks at me would guess that I'm, you know, Hispanic. Even though a lot of Hispanic people look like me. And that's an ethnicity. I know it's not a race. It's an ethnicity. But no one would look at me and say, oh, she might be Korean. No one would look at me and say, oh, she might be white. You know what I mean? So, yes, there are. It's not a one to one correlation that. People of this race always look like X, Y, Z, but it's human nature. All humans do this. All humans rely on the way someone looks in order to place them in that category. And it's something that happens automatically and subconsciously. And so what the answer to implicit bias is to pause and say, I know I might have a gut reaction, but I'm going to withhold judgment until I know for sure. Right. And so 
again, I said this last week, but it's not our fault per se that we have implicit bias. It's not our fault that we've been conditioned to associate um, 4C hair with black people or with African-American people or dark skin with black people. That is a conditioning that we are exposed to by virtue of the society and the time that we're living in. But it's our responsibility to be aware that these implicit biases are at play, right? We have to be aware that we might be making assumptions. And so we always have to ask ourselves, was I making an assumption or was there valid evidence or valid information for me to draw that conclusion, right? And so I think that is one of the, the reasons that colorism impacts all these areas of life is because if you are racially black, but you don't quote unquote look racially black, then people will treat you differently from other black people who do look quote unquote racially black, right? And so that's, that's precisely how colorism is working here. Um, our people get asked the question a lot, what are you, right? What are you? What are you? As if you are not human, but they're talking about what race are you, right? Or what ethnicity are you? And so that's because what you're saying, Courtney, is that those people do not fit the box. They don't fit the stereotype of what someone is, quote unquote, supposed to look like, right? If you're black, you're supposed to look like this, but you don't look like that. So what are you, right? And so it's, it's very... Um, very complicated and layered and that's why racial categories are harmful <laughs> they have not helped human humanity right humanity has not benefited from having racial categories right and we just confused ourselves about who is what and what race and ethnicity right and the labels are here though and they are impacting what happens to people, right? So we didn't create this mess, but we do have to take responsibility for what we do with it now that we have inherited the mess that is so-called race. Um, Jendel says, and even if you individually don't experience the privilege of lighter skin, the system that privileges lighter skin still exists and operates daily. <laughs> Thank you for saying that very um, out and open. Um, the sorority and fraternity used to practice colorism. Yes, you might enjoy last week's live stream where I talked about college campuses. Um, JB says, so true and still happens every day. A sorority did the brown paper bag test on my mom and she passed but refused because she didn't like that idea. So that's a great testimony, Katie. And I think um, the perpetuation of the, paper, the brown paper bag test, which for those who are watching and don't know, it's when you use an actual paper bag and compare it to the skin tone of people trying to join your group. So that group can be a sorority or fraternity, it can be a church, it can be a school, right? And a lot of times that had a negative impact on people's experiences in school, right? At the college level in particular. And so a lot of darker skinned black people even in black spaces felt ostracized, right? Or in the case of Katie's mother, Katie's mother was on the lighter end of the spectrum because she passed the paper bag test, but she rejected that um, practice, right? 
And I, I commend your mom, right? So kudos to your mom. I have to inter I should interview her one day about that experience because I think that takes courage. It takes courage to say, I'm going to resist this practice that is harmful to other people. So even though I benefit from the practice, I'm going to reject that practice because it harms other people that I care about. Courtney says, I have a doctor's appointment in 10 minutes, but I want to say I grew up in poverty with a single mom. I never had an advance in life, advantage in life, especially where I live. I was seen as being unlovable. Courtney, thank you for saying that. And I am, I regret that you had to experience that. And I know what you, I can empathize with feeling like you've never had an advantage in life. Um, and I also have grown up with a single mom, you know, uh, financial struggles as well as being the dark skinned sister and all those things. So we'll have to continue to talk. I don't, you may have already left the live, but definitely keep in touch and I hope you can join again. Um, and I'd like to hear more of your story for sure. Truthful Optimist says, so very true. My family wanted me to lighten my hair in order to have an easier time. This is a good point. So depending on your ethnicity or your race, it might not be your skin color that it might not be your skin color that you're encouraged to change, right? So some people change their hair color or their eyes shape or the nose shape, right? Removing the bridge of your nose. Um, and I think it's all anti whatever the indigenous identity is, right? So it might be anti-Native American, it might be anti-Asian, it could be anti-Black, right? Or anti-Middle Eastern, right? <laughs> um, interested, what are your thoughts on pretty privilege applied to dark-skinned individuals? So pretty privilege definitely applies to dark-skinned individuals as well. Um, and a lot of that plays into texturism or hairism and featureism. So darker-skinned people who have uh, more alkaline features are considered more attractive, right? Even though they are darker skin. And that's when you get told you're pretty for a dark skin girl. People say, oh, you're pretty for a dark skin girl. And I think Kelly Rowland is one of our best examples of this and how her features are not as broad as like a Leslie Jones, right? Or even a Lupita Nyong'o. And her hair texture is even is like pretty bone straight. I don't know if it's naturally that way or not. Um, but when we, when our culture, our society wants to include a dark skinned person, they often are, they often choose the quote unquote pretty for a dark skinned girl. The one who has a certain type of feature or hair texture. Tatiana Ali talked about this too. She talked about the fact that she was dark skinned, but she had the so-called good hair, which allowed her to, you know, have some success in the media. So I think that is definitely at play as well. Katie says, I grew up listening to my mom having to explain this to many people. She constantly got asked what she is. She was Native American in her blood. Louisiana used to do that in the comb test. Absolutely. I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> we need more people like your mom, Katie. Absolutely. Thank you for talking about the halo effect. I've never heard of it, but experienced this growing up. My son is biracial and it's crazy to see what he gets away with. I am Chandra Rule. I hope I said that right. Um, I would love to hear more about that. If not on this live, then maybe another one for sure. I heard that Rosa Parks was chosen for the bus civil rights event because of colorism. I think a lot of it had to do with colorism, truthful optimist, and also respectability politics. 
So she was lighter skinned, but she was also older. And so people felt like the culture would have more sympathy for an older black woman in addition to her being lighter skinned. She was also upper class, like upper middle class. So she was from a, a quote unquote good black family. Whereas Claudette Colvin, who sat on the bus first, right, before the Rosa Parks event, not only was she darker skinned, but she was also not from, you know, a middle-class black family. And she um, had gotten pregnant before marriage, right? So people didn't think that she would be a good face person or face of the movement. So Rosa Parks was definitely chosen for her image, basically, and the various aspects of that. Um, thank you, Alana Moo. They made her feel outcasted in that it would negatively affect her career if she didn't pledge, but she stood her ground, but ended up not pledging, but still was successful. Good job. Congratulations. That's right. And I, I, I get that too. Oh, we'll have to come back to this topic, Katie, and I hope you can rejoin us and tell us more about that story. Um... Hats off to you for acknowledging this. I have a family member that says the same thing about her light-skinned son. Okay, so we're at 2.30. I try to keep these short. <laughs> I said 15 minutes at the beginning of the year. But the last thing is income and wealth. That is the fourth category that colorism impacts for all the reasons I've already stated. So for the sake of time, I won't rehash you know, implicit bias. But if you're in the interview room, research shows that people prioritize the way you look, your skin tone or your features, more than they prioritize your level of education or your level of experience. And again, people don't know they're doing this, right? They, they don't know, they're not aware that they're giving a little more credit to the lighter skinned black person. They don't know that they're judging the darker skinned black person a little harsher than other candidates, right? Um, and so that's why you have to assume that implicit bias is always at play and put in place strategies, mechanisms, systems to check for implicit bias, regardless of who's interviewing you. Um, and then also in terms of wealth specifically, as I mentioned earlier, there's generational wealth and there's also generational poverty. So if your grandparents, kind of like what Katie was saying, right? If your grandparents were afforded high paying jobs because of their connections or because of their social network, then that affords your progeny um, greater socioeconomic advantage as well and greater access to education to then get higher paying jobs, etc. And for a lot of darker skinned black people because of practices like that right because of being excluded from college campuses because of being excluded from um, social organizations and networks where they could gain more social capital and financial capital as well a lot of darker skinned african americans um, had to sort of climb out of debt as one way of thinking about it so the four areas of life impacted by colorism that a lot of people even in 2021 still find surprising healthcare, policing and law, education and schooling, as well as income and wealth. So that's where I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna close by reading my last few comments, if there are any. Um, some do know and do it anyway. This is true. <laughs> um, 
If you are interested in learning more about me or Colorism Healing, you can go to colorismhealing.com. Again, the contest is open to all of you to share your experiences. And I look forward to seeing you all on next week's live. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Please remember to hit the like button and share this episode with a friend. I hope you can join us again for the next one.